If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. This is another of our popular Listener's Choice interviews, which we're playing over the weekend. We've chosen the most popular interviews for you to select the Listener's Choice winner. If you're not sure how the Listener's Choice competition works, have a look at horsechats.com slash choice for the rules and the leaderboard. Today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. International Horse College's motto is people safety and horse welfare, and you'll find this message throughout our chats. Registered Training Organisation number 31352. Today we'd like to introduce Andrew McLean. So Andrew's been involved in the horse industry pretty much for a lifetime. He's been coaching for more than 30 years as an accredited coach. In his own riding, he's won an advanced section of the famous Gawler three-day event. Um, A few years ago, the World Championships were held there. So he's represented Australia in horse trials. He's shortlisted for the World Championships. He has been a competitor in state national events and ridden at FEI level in dressage and eventing and show jumping to Grand Prix. So he's certainly had a lot of experience as a coach. He's also held a racehorse owner trainer license and raced bareback in both Australia and New Zealand in the 70s and the 80s. Now, since then, Andrew's gone on, done a lot of study. He does, um, he's won the highest Australian science award, the Eureka Prize for Science. And this was to do with horses. So Andrew's in great demand as a trainer, teacher, coach and speaker. And he's established the Australian Equine Behaviour Centre, written five books, including an international bestseller and also authored 35 peer-reviewed journal articles. So now Andrew's started training elephants in Nepal in 2007, so we'll ask him a little bit about that, which led to the establishment of a not-for-profit help, which means Human Elephant Learning Program. And now he's the Senior Vice President of HELP. So the cooperative project focuses on optimal management, welfare and training of elephants in Asia using innovative training techniques based on learning theory and the elimination of punishment. So we didn't talk about learning theory um, in the studies, but I'd like to talk about that a little bit later on. So I'd like to introduce you, Andrew. Hello. Hi, Andrew. Nice to be here. Andrew, I I wanted to ask you about your favourite quote. Do you have a favourite quote? You've got one here that I know that Tom Roberts has inspired you. Do you have a a quote that you'd like to tell the listeners? Well, you know, I'm not really into (laughs) quotes a whole lot, but one that I did have I think is important when you're training animals is just a Mark Twain quote saying that kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see because I think quite often – when you're training animals and dealing with people and you get into difficult situations, it's easy for anger to be the first recourse rather than knowledge and understanding. And so I really like that quote because I just think we always have to basically put away our slings and arrows and 
think a bit more about what the problem is that we have and how we're going to sort it out in a more logical kind of way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's excellent. All right, Andrew, I want you to go back from even earlier than when you were racing bareback in Australia and New Zealand in the 70s and 80s and go back to like your first memories of horses, how you introduced to horses and what things were like when you first started. Well, I mean, I came from a very horsey family, uh, my grandfather was a show jumper in Queensland back in the early 1900s. My father was a show jumper and my mother was a very well-known show rider in Melbourne at the time of Kay Irving and people like that. And so horses were a part of our way of living. Mm-hmm. And um, then I moved to King Island with my family as a teenager, as a young teenager, and um, that was a haven for me. And also I was made keen on animals. So, you know, having horses for transport and fun on plus living in an environment where there's lots of animals, that's really what got me going. But, you know, I can't even remember when I couldn't ride. I just remember having a little Shetland pony called Cricket that (laughs) I didn't like a whole lot. I was about three. Mm -hmm. And the only way I could convince mum and dad of that was I stuck the – I kept putting the saddle on the fence and rode the fence instead of the the pony (laughs) because the thing would bite and kick as I was saddling it up, and I they, I had to do it all by myself. So, um, yeah, I had some fun with that. But no, I, I, I think all my brothers, I have three brothers, we all rode them, and two of them were profe- uh, professionals as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, and you've done well then as a, a coach and as a competitor, not just in one discipline, but in you know, dressage, eventing, and also show jumping. So you've done, certainly done some cross-discipline training there. And then you went on. Now, tell me a little bit about your first thought of learning theory and horses and how the two could combine for your research. Okay. Well, you know, I suppose, I mean, my father was an engineer, so I suppose I was always driven by a logical, mechanistic approach. And My background also academically, I'm a zoologist by my first degree. So as a scientist, I was always looking for clear-cut answers because the thing we do know about animals and the way their bodies work and the way their behavior works is it is very predictable in in the sense of how it all works, the link-up of all the neural pathways in the brain. It's just that we don't, you know, we're still learning about the brain in science. It's probably the last frontier it's difficult to really pin down in a lot of ways but we're getting there so i I always sought a a kind of logical answer to everything and um, then as i was riding horses and starting to get into levels of eventing particularly i wanted to find out more about learning and my zoology degree didn't help a whole lot there because zoology teaches you about the natural behaviours of animals, but not much about learning. Mm-hmm. And that's where I started to delve in my PhD into psychology and learning theory. And that's where a whole world opened up for me of understanding about processes of learning. Okay. And if you had to come up with one or, you know, even two or three things that you learned, so this is starting, so before you started the study, before you learnt, before you started, what are the three main or the one main key that you learnt through that research when you when you were doing your PhD? Well, you know, some really simple things, like for example, most of uh, the things we do with horses in terms of riding and leading, particularly, uh, we know we use pressures 
of our reins and, and legs and lead reins and all of those things. And the pressure itself motivates an animal to do something because he wants to remove it. But it's actually the removal that is the important part. You know, so the pressure basically itself motivates, but the removal trains. <laughs> the second thing, and that's important for all, all pressures to recognise that because so many people get into trouble loading horses, trying to get a horse to go through a creek or something like that. Um, even when the horse stops at the job, you know, the pressure will often go away because mm-hmm. the rider turns away or or they think, oh, that didn't work, so they'll try something else. So the horse just learns that whenever you stop the pressure, that's the behaviour he should give and that's the behaviour that actually did stop the pressure. Mm-hmm. So recognising the vastness of that is a really important aspect and mm-hmm. it's a sort of thing that great trainers often know implicitly but don't explicitly know it, you know, yes. so they yes, yep. they can't actually vocalise it. So a lot of what I learned was much about what good trainers do that they don't necessarily tell you, and not because they're concealing it, but just because they themselves don't actually know what it is that's, that's the effective part of what they do. And I see the same thing, that's the same thing with elephant trainers. I've seen exactly the same thing. It's almost a mirror image, you know, because... All these training techniques have been handed down over the centuries, but our understanding of learning is only 60-odd years old. Mm-hmm. And it explains so much. It's something everyone should learn. It really helps enormously. Horses that are scared of things, there's so many desensitization techniques that you can use that are effective for almost every single problem that you need to desensitize the horse for. Mm-hmm. That's one. That's a big one. And so the second thing I learned, what we call classical conditioning, and that simply means that any regular event that we call that happens just before an already known one soon comes to cue it. You know, it soon predicts it. For example, if you want to teach a horse to walk on from the voice command, you would say walk on just before you give him the lead rein cue. And there are so many applications of that in just teaching an animal cue. It's the reason why the you know the old masters all the way through to very good trainers today recognise the importance that the light aid must come first, and that's because of the classical conditioning effect. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's that's the second thing. The third thing is really just about the vast application of habituation techniques when horses are afraid of things. And the main thing I think to keep in mind that I did learn that was quite a big moment for me was the fact that when horses are afraid of something and they learn to run away from it, it's really just how far their legs go and how fast their legs go that matters, that actually embeds it as a fear response. You know, if if they shy or um, bolt off from something that they're scared of, in the future if they're scared of it, it's all to do with how fast and how far they went. Mm-hmm. And so the next time, if you meet that particular stimulus, say, for example, the horse is scared of a, a letterbox or something like that, mm-hmm. as you come past that letterbox, if he doesn't run as fast and as far, he will definitely diminish his fear of that letterbox because what maintains it is that action. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly the same for humans when we're scared of things. If you're scared of heights, what you tend to do is withdraw. You know, you look over the edge and you go and then you step back. Mm-hmm. And it's the stepping back and the withdrawal that maintains the fear response. And that's part of what 
exposure therapy is about in human therapy, and certainly for horses, it's um, it's a really big one. The hard part is you don't want to raise the horse's arousal level too high, mm-hmm. and so you can do it very systematically. But there's heaps of techniques that work on that principle of fast and far. There's overshadowing where you compete with the scary stimulus for a mobility response of the horse. So you might stepping forward and stepping back as you gradually come forward with the clippers or the injection if you're scared of those things. You can teach him that if he's scared of moving objects like motorbikes to chase objects mm-hmm. uh, when you ride him, for example, lead him. So if he's scared of motorbikes, you can get the motorbike in one place in the arena ahead of you or the bobcat, whatever yep. you're scared yep. of. I do with even trams for police forces. Uh-huh. And you, as soon as the machine goes forward, you immediately accelerate the horse. And then when the machine slows down and stops, you stop. Okay. And so you keep the horse really keen and the horse itself starts to want to gain ground on that thing. And in the end, he'll go up to it and, and sniff it. Okay. Like he voluntarily... The, the chasing makes him feel confident and brave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's plenty of other ways to counter conditioning where the scary stimulus now can be converted into a pleasant stimulus if you associate it with something good. Like, for example, he's scared of clippers, turn the clippers on every time before he gets his dinner. And okay. the clippers, it changes the, uh, the mental picture, the perception for the horse. Mm-hmm. So there are so many techniques. I've only tapped the surface just then, but... That's the beauty of what science can do. Mm-hmm. It can really inform a lot. And it doesn't – the thing about science, we call it equitation science. It's not about, you know, making equitation into a science. It's just about trying to understand it better mm-hmm. to help us understand those things that are difficult to understand. But also what I love doing is it gives coaches some understanding of what it is that works for great trainers and why they, why they do what they do, you know, their timing. And the moment they give the aid at a certain footfall, it's really, really relevant mm-hmm. and efficient when they do it at the right time. And the top ones like Charlotte Dujan-Bressage, for example, she mm-hmm. does. But she doesn't necessarily know it implicitly that she's doing it at the right time, but she just feels it. Sure, sure. But we can learn it. Yeah. Mm. Yep. All right. I want you to... Just think back now, and and because you've got an absolute wealth of knowledge, is there a horse that you thought I have really learnt quite a lot with this horse? As an out, you know, just just one particular horse that you've learnt with. Absolutely, yeah. I had a horse called Woodmount Magic that um, I bought for three hundred dollars, and I ended up selling for a hundred thousand. And he was the first horse in Australia to reach six figures. And he came to me at the beginning of my understanding of this knowledge. And he did all of his three-day events. He only ever left home 12 times and uh, got to advanced. He was an excellent horse in the dressage and, and the jumping phases of three-day eventing and had a very good gallop. I got him as a weanling and I started to understand the importance of using pressures and releases at the right time mm-hmm. and... Um, and just a few other things. I mean, I could have done it even better had I known now, but what I know now, but certainly um, it was worked really very well with him. And so he went all the way through his three-day bending just in a snaffle. I never had any other bit in his mouth. Mm-hmm. And he was like a Mercedes to ride. And um, when Vaughan Jeffries rode him, it, I lent him to Vaughan for Wandon once when he uh, came as a bidding rider. And he, he still came up to me 
when I went when I was in New Zealand some months ago and said to me that that was the best trained horse he'd ever ridden. And <laughs> isn't that great? You know, he was like a Mercedes to riding cross country, and that was really just from using pressure and release mm-hmm. so well. And he was my before then. I had a great little horse called Woodman Enterprise that I rode in a Pelham and. I was just beginning to understand things with him, but it was all a bit too late. But then I got Woodmount Magic, and I made so many fewer mistakes with him. Mm-hmm. So he, he he really was a big learning curve for me, and, and quite an experiment too. Having got him as a weanling, I did everything. I broke him in. I taught him to lead. I broke him in. Mm-hmm. I even raced him because I didn't own him then. The owner said I wasn't allowed to have him because he was bred to race. He was <laughs> a, a grand both sides were Star Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So he was bred in the purple, as they say. That, so that's, um, that's I got myself a race breeding. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so I got myself a race trainer's license so that I could keep hold of him. And he said, look, if I had a race trainer's license, I could race him. Yes. Well, I got a race trainer's license, and I think I was stone motherless last most races. And then he <laughs> made the logical conclusion that it was probably my training and not the horse's fault. So. We sent the horse to Michael Trinder, who was a much better trainer. This is when I lived in Tasmania. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael gave him quite a few starts and said, look, this is really a long, long stayer. It's got no sprint in at all. And all of the early events, you know, events for young horses, two- and three-year-olds, four-year-olds, were all sprints. So that counted for that. So the owner realized, well, he wasn't going to maybe make a great early racehorse. So mm-hmm. I said, look, I'll – can I buy him? And he said, look, just break in a racehorse for me. That'll pay for him. And then off we went on this <laughs> training tour. And um, he was the first horse that broke 80% in a dress size test too in the North East Dress Size Championships. That's, and yeah. Um, uh, yeah, he was a pretty, pretty special horse. And then um, I sold him to Tim Collins in England. He came out looking for – Eddie Stibby wanted to buy him – well, offered me $60,000 for him at – Mm-hmm. Wandon, and then the next year, Eddie's, uh, Tim Collins came out from England, and uh, well, he's from Bermuda, but resided in England, and offered me a hundred thousand. So I said, "Well, yeah, that would really help me pay for my farm." So yeah, yeah, that was sensational. Yeah, I've never yeah. sold the horse either before since then uh, for anything like that. Uh, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a seller, mm. but um, it really helped us go. And, and then the horse, he he was unable to ride the horse in England after that um, and uh, um, yeah. for very reasons. And um, But he was a stallion, so I think he made his money well and truly breeding. He's, mm. he's signed quite a lot of event horses in, in England. Okay, okay. All right. Look, you, you've had quite a few proud moments, proud moments as a competitor, proud moments just within your own achievements, you know, having a bestseller book. You've done quite a lot. What's your proudest moment? I think there are so many of them. You know, I don't really I, – I couldn't say winning any event was a proud moment. It was always a strange moment to me in some ways. I think I probably wasn't the greatest competitor. I wasn't really badly driven by that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't – I think it was when I published a paper on the um, evolution of mental abilities in birds and mammals. It was a new theory. That was, a, I guess, a really proud moment and – but, you know, life's littered with them. When I help someone with a horse and I see that they've really learned it and they can 
do it themselves. That's a proud moment, and mm. I don't really. It doesn't pale into insignificance compared to any other moment. So, animals give you so many of those moments. When I when I teach an elephant in Burma to to park because it's never stood still and it's really nervous, and I teach it to be relaxed and to just stand still, mm. that's a great moment. Mm. Um, helping mahouts, you know, because they're the poorest people in the world. They usually the poorest caste mm -hmm. in India and Nepal at least, and giving them some feeling of confidence about new knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, they're great minds. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, uh, before we go, I'd like you to give a training tip for horses and a training tip for riders, just so the listeners then can go away and learn more from this conversation that we're having. So have you got a tip that you would like to give the listeners something to do with their horses, something to do with training, and also just something that they themselves would like, just a training exercise? Okay. Well, first of all, a tip would be to really think about from the horse's point of view Every time they use their rein and leg pressures, what does it mean to the horse? Is that particular signal unique for a particular response? How many responses do they want? I think it's important to think about those things. You know, that when you use your leg on the horse's sides, does it mean go? Does it mean go faster? Does it mean go longer? Does it mean go up the gate? Does it mean bend? Does it mean turn? If it's the same signal in the same place for all of those things, then that can be a problem. You can use leg pressures in different kinds of ways for different durations, and you can move them to you know maybe to maybe three different sites, but usually only two places on the you know on the girth and a little bit behind. Mm -hmm. But I think it's worth thinking about that from the horse's point of view, and remembering that no matter what people think, you can't use two aids together to get an efficient response because one will overshadow the other. Mm -hmm. So I think thinking about keeping. Thinking of the aids as like a symphony, but there are no chords. That's how I like to think of it, that when you ride horses, you think of it like that, that it's just a flow of signals, but never one blocking and overshadowing the other. And in terms of a training exercise, one thing that I like to do to give people feel, because I do believe you can teach people feel as a mm -hmm. general belief, I think, that, you know, you can't. Certainly some come to it more quickly than others, but one exercise that you can learn to get some feel through your seat and through your hands and legs is if you just go from halt and ask your horse to walk six steps and halt on the sixth, okay. and not the seventh, not the fifth, but just mm -hmm. on the sixth. And what you, what you notice, I don't know, people don't tend to notice this, but the last leg to stop when you halt is usually the first leg to move, the last four legs, I should say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking six steps the front legs, don't worry about the hind legs, just the four legs. Mm -hmm. So you do six steps of the four legs. So the last leg just to halt is the first leg to move. So obviously if you're doing it in an even number of steps, you will finish on alternate legs each time. And that will reveal one leg that tends to be always more in front of the other in the halt. And that is the diagonal pair that tends to have a little bit more flight response and running response and harder to control. It'll be the rein that's usually, it's usually the right rein on which the horse is the most stiff, uh, doesn't bend, falls out a lot on, and it's exacerbated by riders then hanging on more with the right rein in response mm -hmm. and being right-handed perhaps. But it really originates because of the different, the asymmetrical 
nature of the horse in diagonal pairs. One diagonal pair is muscled more strongly for acceleration than the other one. And that's really a big part of my teaching because once you get control of the diagonal pairs and you make them even, like in a sense, ambidextrous, you've got lightness. The horse is so much better. That's, yeah. But doing that six steps at each time, you feel it through your seat, you feel it through your reins, and you feel it through your leg in the go button. And that is a re- just practicing that is good for horses and really good for people. And I teach many people, even at Grand Prix level, that are unable to do that because they, the horse always halts on the same foreleg. Yes. But you should be able to halt on the forelegs finishing. Okay. That, that's an excellent exercise and it's one that um, the listeners can go away with and it doesn't matter what level they are. They could be at Grand Prix, they could be starting off, they could be – it. But it's an excellent exercise. Thank you for that. Yeah, you will find. Um, I'll find you that I'll come back and say that the horse is so much better for it. It, it, it softens them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Now, Andrew, what does the differences and also the similarities between elephants and horses? Ah, well, in terms of learning, I don't think there are very many differences. I think horses are just as quick at learning through operant conditioning, that is, pressure release, mm-hmm. as elephants are. Um, it could, could be that I'm a better horse trainer than an elephant trainer, but pretty much it happens in the same speed. And this, there's the same variation. Some elephants take a bit longer than others, and some horses take longer. But the big difference is actually in reasoning. Elephants really do see behind a lot of situations that horses don't see. So, for example, elephants are tool users, so they need a little bit of planning, you know, because they've got a trunk. Mm-hmm. And I've had so many experiences um, along these lines where, for example, I'll ask the elephant to sit, and we've already trained him to sit. Yep. But instead of sitting where you tell him, he'll actually <laughs> walk off and go and sit somewhere more comfortable and then look at you. <laughs> and that then you suddenly know there's quite a person inside there. Mm. There's somebody, <laughs> and he's looking at you um, in that way. So that's, uh, to me... An elephant is like a cross between a horse and a dog. I was just going to say that's a little bit of dog behaviour there, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, I think they're quite similar. Uh But there's just as big a range. There's elephants that are like Labradors and there are others that are a little bit like Alsatians. (laughs) There's quite a range. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Bearing in mind the horses are domestic species and elephants are, are not at all. There's no such thing as a domestic elephant because Nobody's selectively bred elephants yet, mm-hmm. and they never will. I think their numbers are diminishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so now what does the future hold for you? Look, I don't really know. I'm just – I live from day to day. I'm not a great planner. My People often ask me how I've planned things, and I haven't. I'm hopeless at that. But things just keep evolving, and I keep moving with the flow. Um, my elephant work is really evolving rapidly. We now have tax-deductible status for our, um, for our not-for-profit charity, and we are now – we've had a lot of competition from other training groups around the world, and we are now the official training partners for the Wildlife Trust of India, for the National Elephant Institute of Thailand, and for Myanmar Timber Enterprises, which is the biggest owners of elephants in the world. They own 3,000 elephants in Burma. Mm-hmm. And they're now looking at changing what they do because uh, logging has stopped in Burma. So that's that's wonderful news. So that's yielding a lot, and the big part of that is conservation, and that's 
really where we're heading our work now is not so much well training will always be part of it and that was our original drive but the conservation issue is so important because there is so much poaching of elephants Myanmar borders China and the elephants just keep disappearing across the border through poaching the biggest population of Asian elephants in the world is Myanmar and those numbers are declining so rapidly that it's not funny and they live all around human settlements now which is dangerous and the uh, ratio of males to females is now very unhealthy mm-hmm. so it's looking very bad so we need to really stop this poaching it's outrageous and we have a very with some really good techniques that we want to introduce to Myanmar and Thailand in particular that had been done in India where there are poaching controls using elephants for poaching patrols throughout these natural parks and it's really been hugely successful in northern India to the point where it's the only place in the world where rhino numbers have actually increased. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, that's, that's nothing to do with horses. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's nice though to know that the knowledge that you've gained if you work with horses has been able to transfer over then to other animals. Yeah, I think so. And I think if we all you know, love animals and we love horses, we shouldn't be sitting on our hands when the rest of the you know, species on earth are diminishing and in trouble. We should be doing as much as we can to keep this planet in good order. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Now, I know that you've written five books and one of them was an international bestseller. What is, first of all, a book that would complement your books? Because what I can do is at the um, show notes at the end of the page, I can put links through to your books and the information about that. But what's another one that you use as a complement to your book, to um, what you've done? Another book that I've written, do you mean? Or? No, no, no. Like a um, compliment. Say, so I'm going to put the details of all. Or what, tell me. You tell the readers, the listeners, and even a summary of each of your books would be good. Right, okay. Well, the, I suppose at a very academic level, we have equitation science, and we have a new edition coming out at the end of this year, and we've recruited two really brilliant scientists as well to give us more understanding of what goes on inside horses' heads and in biomechanics and all of these areas. And it's a massive improvement on the first edition, which we were proud of as well. Mm -hmm. I wrote that with Paul McGreevy. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing that go. And it's more user-friendly for people. It's, I think, in a lot of ways easier to read than the first book. Um, But it's really uh, what we – Kind knows about horses to this date. That's 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 all, you know, true and correct inside. Okay. Yep. Um, I wrote academic horse training as a response to that book, as a practical manual, so that people could then, you know, train horses. There's hundreds of exercises in that, mm-hmm. and I have that on our website. And then, but the but the first book I wrote was the Truth About Horses, and that was the one that's been an international bestseller, and that one starts at the start and gives people an understanding of why you would want a scientific approach, what does science yield, what are the pitfalls of science in that approach, and therefore how you would apply it and understand the horse's mind, and it gives some training as well. So, And there's DVD associated with some of those books. Um, there's uh, also, I've, I've written a few entries for encyclopedias and textbooks, of other people's as well. Mm-hmm. But they're the main books that 
have. And there's also another book called Horses Hate Surprise Parties, which is written by a student of mine, and um, she's actually a novelist, mm-hmm. but has been working with me for many years and knows the work so well. And she's written this for children, and it's a really, it's really digestible. And so that's, so that that book is, I think they're easily googled. Okay, and for people to find out more and to find out about you, if you can just say your website. Our website is www.esi-education.com and um, that's Equitation Science International is, um, is what our name is. Mm-hmm. And um, on that website they can contact me through that as well. Okay. And most of all the abstracts of all the papers I've ever written are on those uh, is up there as well. All right, then. And one last thing is what message would you like to leave people with before we say goodbye? I'd like to leave people with the messages. Don't just think of your reins are there for hanging on onto and just for contact. Teach your horse really clear brakes. Teach him how to stop, slow down, shorten, and um, it'll become more and more subtle and more invisible with the reins, but it's definitely what the reins are for, and if you do that, you'll be safe. Okay, wonderful. All right, thanks very much, Andrew. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 